The Blueprint 1543 team finished 18 months of qualitative research, summarily called In Search of Theological Scientists, or ISOTs, a planning grant. Five key strategies and 20 specific example projects emerged, all with the goal of activating more progress in a science-engaged theology. This four-part series of podcasts highlights some of the important reflections from leaders in science-engaged theology who we interviewed along the way. We hope you'll enjoy these conversations and get involved. Welcome back to the In Search of Theological Scientists podcast series. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of exploring a research project that Blueprint 1543 put together in which we identified five strategies for nurturing and encouraging science engagement from theologians and theology engagement from scientists. Just to name those strategies again. One, inspire integrative work. Two, build trust. Three, include scientists and theologians. Four, get specific. And five, create opportunities for constructive collaboration. Today, we're focusing on including scientists and theologians, but we'll also touch on creating opportunities for constructive collaboration. First, here's Justin on what we mean by including both scientists and theologians. We might think that the task of getting scientists, especially human scientists, to a position that they're ready to contribute to theological inquiry, we might think that then we need programs that are just going to focus on the human scientists. But we're of the view, based on the conversations that we've been having, that there's still work to be done on preparing the theologians as well. That we need some activities that are focused indeed on those scientists. We need some activities that are still preparing theologians in a way, in many ways, to to work better with the sciences and with scientists, but we also need projects that are going to bring both together uh, on specific kinds of activities, whether they are communication in sort of engagement projects, whether they are applied projects, or whether they're basic research projects. So we encourage a uh, funding strategy that includes both scientists and theologians often working together. So today we're featuring an interview we did with a team that has collaborated a lot. It's three people. Myrene Penner, who is a philosophical theologian, uh, Amanda Maskowitz Cordero, who is a biologist, and Amanda Nichols, who's a chemist. And all three of them are very committed people of faith. Their experience becoming very good friends and collaborating on multiple research projects is an example of kind of the best case scenario for this type of work. So we hope you'll enjoy some of their insights around how to make collaborations like this work. Enjoy. For, for us and our collaborations, it all goes back to the summers of 2015 and 2016, which is where we met uh, as part of a multidisciplinary cohort that was assembled through the Scholarship in Christianity in Oxford 
people at Wycliffe Hall at Oxford, where we discovered people from all these different disciplines who had interests in uh, science and religion, thinking through theological topics that intersect with science. And you had scientists that were there who were gaining some competencies in theology and philosophy and history. And you also had, you know, theologians and philosophers who were part of that same experience who were gaining more expertise uh, in, in sciences. And so we, you, you get to discover like-minded people who have interests in similar kinds of things. And so that was just a really good starting point of rubbing shoulders with people from these, these uh, sciences who are interested in talking about theology and philosophy. So establishing that relationship was, was key. This particular project that we were working on, on um, the science of sex determination and some philosophical and theological implications from that, when I had the opportunity through the um, St. Andrew's New Visions and Theological Anthropology Project to to apply for some funding to put a team together, uh, I initially and immediately thought of April Cordero, who is a uh, biologist and has had lots of experience working with theologians and philosophers as someone who could help orient uh, me to the, the biology and also help us uh, get access to some very exclusive, isn't the right word, but, but very top-tier uh, working labs where they're doing work in the science of sex determination. So my first thought was to reach out to to April as kind of a biology specialist and a science educator, <clears throat> a science educator, and someone who's work has is used to the quirks and oddities of philosophers, uh, and and is okay with that. Uh, and then um, so that was kind of the the first contact. Uh, Amanda Nichols and I have worked together on a number of different philosophy of science projects. And I always feel like when you're talking about, you know, molecular processes, it's always good to have a chemist in the room. And, and we had had a long history of collaborating as well. And I just uh, felt that the three of us uh, would work well together in navigating the science and uh, thinking through how to connect with these labs and to ha have um, developed some, some, credentials there when we're meeting uh, high-powered researchers for the first time to have scientists in the room. So that was kind of the initial impetus. We had this kind of pre-existing uh, uh, friendship and had collaborated on on a couple of things. April and I haven't collaborated formally, but I've been informally involved in some different projects that she's been a part of and just conversations uh, throughout the years. And so then it was pretty easy to put the team together and to have the funding to be able to go and, and work on the project. It's been very, very satisfying. Uh, I would have to say it's one of the most satisfying projects I've been a part of just because uh, I feel like I've learned so much. Uh, I feel like the topic is important and interesting. I feel like we've been able to, in a uh, uh, an authentic way, be true to the science and to to make really good connections with people who are doing cutting-edge scientific research had not really had the opportunity to connect with some of the implications of their work. Uh, and so that's been been satisfying too. Awesome. I wonder if Amanda and April, if you could maybe take turns uh, if you want to, commenting on what sort of cultural, like each domain, each uh, discipline kind of has its own cultural quirks its own sort of personality. And I wonder what you have noticed about, uh, you know, the culture of philosophers and theologians and what sort of challenges are there and what sort of like inspirational fun things are there once you've connected with these other realms? Like what were just some of your initial impressions or maybe not so initial, you know, down the road impressions? Uh, I think for me, one of the things that's made me, it's 
working with philosopher with the philosopher and then going to like philosophy conferences and being around philosophers more it's taught me to be careful with how i explain things and describe things and so something myron has said sometimes is that scientists lie <laughs> and i don't think we really do but we just i don't we just don't give the full picture always or we take shortcuts um, sometimes part of it is just using technical language and not explaining what it means. So that's been one of the things that has made me mindful about how I'm describing the science or the chemistry. I think it's made me a better teacher. Uh, so I teach freshmen typically, and I feel like I've, my teaching has improved quite a bit over the last few years because I'm much more careful about how I describe processes. So that's one of the first things that comes to mind. Yeah, for me, it's interesting. We were just editing this paper that we're wrapping up um, to get published just now. And we had a little conversation about the word numerically. Um, because for a philosopher, that meant something and, and is used commonly by philosophers to mean something that had absolutely no meaning for me except what it would mean for the late audience. And so engaging in conversations about words and terminology, um, I am an author of co-author on two different books with theologians and it's always been how a word gets used so uh for example i think it's ruach is the word and it means breath of life and so um in the first book with mike lodal he wanted to talk about breath and breathing and i'm like you i can't be on a book as an author, if you're going to talk about breathing this way, because breathing is respiration and I'm a biologist and it means this thing. It doesn't mean that thing. So we had to go back and forth. I remember on that particular term and use of the word several times in order for us to like that sentence of a whole book. Um, so it's really learning how to communicate differently and it's fun but it's also a challenge and so you just have to I think get along very well with the person that you are working with in another domain so that you can say I can't use this word so we got to come up with something else or you know and they they just have to be able to work through that as opposed to insisting one way or another because there's always a solution it just may take some time and effort to come to that so that's been one really interesting um and unexpected aspect of working with people in other fields. One of the things that Amanda and I adopted fairly early on in our collaboration was this principle that when it comes to, to the language that we use in anything that's public facing, whether it's in a presentation or in, in written work, especially that you submit for publication, <clears throat> we would try to use language that wouldn't make any of our respective disciplines cringe. Right. So we wanted to find words and, and, and phrases and terminology that would be uh, recognized by our respective uh, disciplinary uh, partners. And, and sometimes just as exactly as April said, it is, it does take a little bit of, of hard, you know, thinking to find out what that right language is to capture the concept you're trying to express at the intersection of science and philosophy or science and theology that is going to be recognizable both to both to scientists or at least not describing scientific processes in ways that scientists would be like, yeah, no, that's not how we do things. And so, but I think as, as a result of that, you actually come to a really cool place where you can see things in a fresh and innovative way that actually captures what you're what you're wanting to talk about but exactly as april said you need to have that that ability to to work together and to 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 communicate uh, in ways that are are heard and understood 
And, and I'm going to add that having the friendship or at least acquaintance level is so critical, which is why I think Myron began talking about the, how we met and our involvement with the SKIO project is that we got to know each other and you're not working with a stranger. There's, there's, there's a difference. And there, there's a trust factor that is a part of it too, because one of the real benefits of working with people from other disciplines in real time, face to face, is you have the opportunity to ask the really simple, dumb, stupid question, right? And to, to get, you know, quick feedback in real time. But you have to be able to be okay displaying your own ignorance, really. And as to how, you, you know, if you have that, that trust factor there, it just helps a lot of things. I don't trust April at all, but she trusts me quite a lot. So I think that's that that works. Exactly. <laughs> totally not true. I think projects like this too, I was trying to think of just some, you know, answering your question. I think one of the neat things about it is that there are questions I've had that are not science questions, but I didn't have the tools or even like the time and space to be able to explore that. And that and that's what, you know, interdisciplinary collaborations help me be able to do that. I'm learning the tools, having the space having the time to be able to do those type of, you know, that type of research. Yeah, so maybe you guys can explore, that leads really nicely into what I was going to ask next, is like, as we're thinking of ways to inspire people to do these collaborative, integrative projects, it's sort of a challenge to frame it in a way that makes someone feel that this might help their own professional goals to work. It, it seems almost like you have to kind of step up, take a step back to like learn get become versed in another field and stuff and you're like how does this and you talked about myron about how like you know writing in such a way that doesn't embarrass you, yourself in, in your own field you know so i wonder if you guys could kind of reflect on that are there ways to to frame interdisciplinarity as as being uh good for your own professional goals and or like there's also the other things like the the motivation that April just mentioned, like the personal thing of like, well, I actually do have these questions that need to be answered by other disciplines. So this gives me an opportunity to answer some of these more personal questions. Like, of course, being like a person of faith or interested in metaphysical questions or whatever might might be a motivator. Or, you know, you might just want to have ways to kind of make your research have more impact in the world or a certain kind of impact in the world. So when we're thinking about like a motivation for, so just a general question reflecting on the motivation for being inspired to do interdisciplinary work. What we learn, what we're learning about in biology in general in the 21st century is that the questions are really difficult questions to answer. And just using, um, you know, our biology wand to try to magically explain something, it's just not quite sufficient. And these are complicated questions that require bringing in other disciplines and domains. Uh, global climate change is a perfect example. It, we need psychology. Uh, we can impact the church more if we bring in theology. So there's a huge motivation. If I want, as an ecologist, to improve our environment, I need to go interdisciplinary. And another opportunity there is not a lot of people have gone interdisciplinary. So there's a space and a niche for somebody who is willing to, as you say, step back a little and become a learner again. And maybe uh, not produce for a little while because you're in your learning phase. But on the other side of that, you sort of hold a special place in a not very, you know, in a kind of a large pond with not a lot of fish because not a lot of people are interdisciplinary. 
So it takes a little forethought to decide you want to do that. But there is so much reward in the end because not only do we grow, I mean, all of us, all three of us would agree we've grown so much by working interdisciplinarily in the last eight years. And and there's fun and enjoyment. But we have produced presentations and talks and podcasts and papers and books because there's this open space for it. So I think those are two uh, motivations that that are just ripe for the taking. Yeah, I think for me, when I think about like your first question was about how how could interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary work serve one's professional goals. And for me, it starts with just being able to identify research questions that you don't think can be satisfying or addressed in a satisfying way through the lens of one particular discipline, right? And so maybe you're thinking about a problem or a question and you're looking at available answers that your discipline's provided and none of them are really kind of working. Or you have an idea and you think it might intersect with another discipline or a science. And so you have a conversation and you try and, and roll that out to, to someone who has other disciplinary expertise. And, and if they get excited about it, that's kind of a clue to say, oh, maybe this is fertile ground for, for cross-disciplinary work. And I think as I reflect on some of the more satisfying collaborations, I mean, if, if a person who is not from your discipline, but is interested in having a conversation, if they're the type of person who is curious and has a really good understanding of their own discipline, what it can do, but what it can't do, and is interested in exploring opportunities for bringing multidisciplinary perspectives to bear on a particular question. That that kind of curiosity and kind of uh, being able to give and receive uh, information, data, perspectives with an open hand, uh, I think is really uh, a key part of what it means to to do this work in a satisfying way. But I think also, just as a philosopher, my impression of of working with scientists, I think sometimes philosophers or theologians miss the mark in trying to collaborate with scientists because they're just not clear about what they're saying. They don't have a very precise question. They don't have a, a sufficient handle on what it is that they're asking the scientists to provide. And I think, you know, people, if you're trying to convince uh, some scientists who really may not understand what philosophy or theology is, who might not have a good handle on what benefits there might be in cross-disciplinary com- you know, work, you have to, I think it's, it's particularly a, a on the philosopher or theologian to really present an opportunity in clear, precise language that presents to the scientist, you know, what it is that they're looking for and why it matters, right? And, and I think that's, you know, some something that that's important to bring to this type of collaborative work. And I think, I mean, the project that we've just been working on, on the science of sex determination, I think it was a very clear mission that we had in understanding the science, namely what, you know, what, what does the science of sex determination tell us about the contingency of biological sex, right? That was kind of the, the, the precise thing that we were wanting to, to understand. And, you know, April was kind of opened the doorway to us into the science and doorways into labs where they're doing this kind of work. To add on to that, a bit of uh, humility happened for actually both Amanda and Myron in this instance in that, I mean, you guys talk a little bit about biology boot camp, but I, I had to be willing to take the time to teach, which of course most professionals and professors were willing to do that, but they had to be willing to learn. So maybe you should explain what that was, but there is a sense of openness and humility that, that somebody has to come into this with. 
Yeah, I think because I was I was thinking about how one of the motivations for on the science side is that one, you you might be the expert, right, in your area. So it's going to push you to make sure you really know your stuff because there are times, right, there's questions that are asked that I'm like, I don't know. I'm a chemist, but I don't I don't know that for sure. I don't have to go read some things, right? So I think it's that's one of the motivations too. It just makes you better in your discipline. But then, you know, I I, I don't know much. I didn't know anything about biology, hardly anything. And so April for this project, she made kind of like a curriculum and we called it biology bootcamp and came together a week and she taught us a bunch of biology. So then we could tackle the sex determination biology part of it. Right. So as a result of biology bootcamp, she coached the both of us up to, in, to, to the point where, I mean, prior to that, other than, you know, reading some articles here and there, I've got like a biology 11 background, but April was able to teach us in the course of a week to the point where we had a basic kind of understanding of, gen, of genetics and were able to read fairly technical papers on the science of sex determination and with, with, at a, at a sufficient level of comprehension to allow us to proceed. And so that was a, a real, a real gift to us and a necessary step in this particular project because we needed scientific expertise to open some of these concepts to us. And it took a week. We worked five days and we don't live in the same place. So it takes funding, not only for us to have met in the beginning and for somebody to initiate the question that wants to be pursued, but then it's like, okay, now we need a hotel, we're going to need food. And we met, we probably did some learning five, six hours a day of learning and sort of explaining. And then, you know, you have to backtrack on Wednesday to what you did on Tuesday because you realized something wasn't learned. And then at Thursday, you're backtracking back to Tuesday again to review some complicated thing in genetics. And so it's a, a process. It can't be rushed, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not simplistic. It can't be rushed, but it's super, super rewarding and very valuable and informative. And there's a need. Well, and you need a stern taskmaster who motivates through shame and punishment. <laughs> yep. And April's the woman for the job. <laughs> Hilarious. So I thought we'd just take a little break here to talk about creating opportunities for constructive collaboration. Here's a little bit more from Justin Barrett on what we had in mind when we were talking about this. And it's super relevant to my conversation with Myron, April, and Amanda. By creating opportunities for constructive collaboration, what we have in mind is uh, funding initiatives that are aimed at projects where it's really pretty obvious that the most rapid progress is going to be made when you're bringing multiple types of scholars from different disciplinary perspectives and that you're bringing theology and the sciences together to solve the problem. There's some problems where it sure looks like we could make good progress just working as uh, regular old human scientists, and somewhere it looks like theologians do fine without the scientists sort of getting involved. So can we identify projects that create a space for, a conceptual space, a problem space, where theologians and scientists see they need each other, and that they are going to make more progress if they work together in a constructive, collaborative kind of manner. I think those are the opportunities where we're going to see most growth, where we're going to uh, get people used to thinking differently about how to either do theology or the human sciences, that is, that they should inform each other, and where then through this collegial co collaboration, there's going to be opportunity to build trust, to uh, 
to start to respect each other in a new and deeper way. Okay, let's return to my conversation with April, Myron, and Amanda. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about the relationship aspect, which you guys touched on multiple times already. What did it go? And it, it piggybacks onto what April was just saying in terms of things taking time, not just the like the intellectual boot camp, but actually the relationship forming. So in the first like skio thing when y'all met and got together, was it on that trip that you were able to kind of become like move from, oh, look at that scientist on the other side of the room and look at that philosopher on the other side of the room to, oh, these are my friends now, or I'm, I already am like getting to that point. Or did it take a few times or like, you might even tell a story about like really like becoming friends. I don't, however you want to say that. (laughs) I'm going to start because it wasn't about putting us in the same room for us to listen to a lecture. It was really about providing enough time outside of that. So we had a common experience. We heard somebody speak and then there was enough time outside of that for us to get together over a coffee, whatever, and talk about what we heard to develop the relationship and the trust. And so it's, it's a distinction there that, you know, coming, listening to talk, when you go to a conference, you hear people speak, that's not developing the relationship. It was actually the time together with the common information, but then the time to discuss it and talk about it on our own at night afterward, that type of thing. Like an immersion type of experience, right? So we were all there, um, kind of, you know, away from normal life in a way, right? So we're not, we're not working at the same time. We're going to lectures. We have research time, but then we have the time where we're able to just process it together. April and I would ask questions that, you know, because the first summer especially was all humanities. And so just kind of being able later to be like, okay, here's, I don't know what they they meant by this word, or I don't know what they meant by this. Or sometimes the whole entire talk. I would say I got the first 10 minutes and then I have no idea what they were talking about. So what was the point? What should I have left with? And and it takes a week or two to be willing to say, you know, I was clueless. I mean, so having experience like that, you're you're meeting up almost every day afterwards, right? To process it. And so just having that time and space, it it, it maybe uh, accelerated that because you, so there was 25 of us. And so all of us have common interests, right? In science and religion. Uh, we're interested in multidisciplinary work, but then within that group, you start finding your people, right? People that you get along with. And then that's, I think, what grew, grew from, that's the different collaborations that we've seen that's grown from that. A, a big part of it though, too, I mean, it's one thing to have kind of a, a connection at a friend level and you've got this overlapping set of interests, even though you have different backgrounds. But when it comes to actually working together and and now you, you've set up a project, then you know, this is in any kind of group work situation, there has to be a a certain level of like, you have to be able to have work habits that work well together. You have to be able to, to divide labor in ways that are satisfying to everybody. You have to figure out who, who does what well, and to let those gifts kind of manifest uh, in ways that are, you know, for the good of the project, basically. So, you know, we've all had different experiences collaborating with different people, and it's gonna it's going to vary according to those kind of personality things. Even if you are are friends with other people, so friendship is is great, but it doesn't cover it doesn't it's not the only tool that you need to to succeed. 
I just have memories of April uh, asking questions. And I know that that she, like in these lectures where people would be speaking, uh, she would be the one who would just, you know, raise the hand and ask the question that a lot, that several other people were asking, but she just had that. And I don't think it took a week or two. I think that was from day, from day one. And that, you know, that was, was a good, a good habit. Right. And, and you need that freedom in multidisciplinary works just to ask the basic question, even if you think it might, you know, make you look, you know, not not intelligent or having the right background. I do that all the time, you know, especially like how many times have I asked about the periodic table as we've been working, you know, like just some basic stuff, right? So that's that that's a good posture to have. That's surprising because April's known for her timidity, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Putting herself out there. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting about that is Nobody seems to mind explaining a simplistic, the periodic table, or what's a gene, really, or, or you know, nobody minds that. We talk, assuming people are with us, we want people to track what we're saying, and if they don't, I want to I know, I want to be told. And so that happens in now in the writing, as we work together, and then we put it on paper, and they're like, well, what is what is that? Or is this right? Or is this the right word? Or and so it, it just translates from verbal conversation onto paper, and then we continue to learn and grow that way. Yeah, I, um, I'm not sure what this last question is, but something about there's like this refreshing switch or shift towards more and more specific work. Like your project is a great example of such a specific question with uh, kind of really really uh, specific avenues of science connecting with specific avenues of philosophy, um, theology. And so, you know, there needs to be more of that. It's just more exciting and refreshing. And and sometimes it's even a problem to kind of see, like, it, for a while, it seems like the collaborations happen where here's some science-minded folks over here and here's some theology-minded folks over here and just sort of running in parallel, kind of researching the same thing. But then sometimes it can be hard to find the points. So you're not just working parallel. Here's some science stuff. Here's some theology stuff. But actually making connections and weaving it together a bit more. Have you guys had that experience? Or do you have any advice or reflections on how to find points of connection rather than just that parallel work and also this refreshing switch, switch into more specific questions and inquiry than, rather than meta science and religion, you know? It goes back to what I was saying earlier about the importance of just having a clear research question, especially if you're on the humanities side and you want to engage scientists, you need to have a very specific thing that you want them to contribute to, because if you just immediately go to a science scientist and want them to get interested in philosophy of science or theology of science, that might be a tougher, tougher sell, at least initially. But if you actually are able to present to them an opportunity where their particular scientific expertise can be utilized by you and in collaboration with them on some of these other broader topics, that I think is, is uh, a key thing. Like cognitive science of religion, I think, is a good example of how this can work in a very precise way. Right from the beginning, cognitive science of religion was not really interested in explaining religion, you know, writ large. Rather, it was looking at, you know, very, very specific expressions of religious belief and practices and behaviors and focusing in on, on a, on a very specific thing and trying to, to, 
you know, through experimental methods and other uh, um, theoretical framing, explain those those types of things. And then once you're able to do that, you can maybe build out. And I think that's been part of the success of that research paradigm. And I think that just broad science and religion questions. I mean, it's important at some at, at, to be in a position at some point to take a step back and say, okay, are there are there what do we think is true about broad connections, big picture kinds of things? But I think. A lot of, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the real exciting stuff happens at a very, very specific entry point. And so just having a really clear question and, and, and presenting those, those opportunities for, for conversation at that, I think that's, that's where it starts. It's interesting. I had a question. So as, as a science, personal science educator, and I really wanted to work with a, a psychology person and I could never find it. So I was trying to really understand sort of the science, the psychology science behind why evolution, why there's so much resistance to it. And I was looking in psychology, I was looking at the literature, um, someone directed me to the literature on helping people accept death. You know, they, you get diagnosed with a terminal disease and you're in denial and how do, how do you move them towards acceptance, right? And so, and so... I, I really wanted to work with somebody on that project. I really wanted to get to this point of true collaboration, creating something to publish, collecting data. And I just couldn't seem to figure out how to find somebody who really had the time and the energy and just wanted to do that with me. So I never did. Um, I read my own stuff. I applied it all in my own classroom. I did some of my own science education research, but it just stopped there. And so I feel that those are missed opportunities. It's a very specific question that could have really benefited from a person in psychology, a professional. But I just didn't have a way to find a person that wanted to do that project with me. So figuring out, I don't know, an organization maybe such as yours, finding ways to, to get people together that have interesting questions around the same topics to allow that natural relationship. It's not that I didn't know any psychologists. It's some that I didn't want to work with and some didn't want to work with me and it just didn't happen. So what do you do in those instances, right? I just feel like Justin's going to listen to that and he's going to weep. He's going to be like, I know 27 different psychologists who would have been great collaborators with you, April. That's the point. I had nowhere to go. Yeah, I know. He was he, and you know, maybe Myron, but also like he kind of hates being the only person people ask questions like that. You know, (laughs) he like he would love for there to be an app for that. You know, for sure. (laughs) Even a listserv, even a a way to connect six hundred people that are interested in science and faith questions, science and religion questions, like. Tinder for academic cross collaboration, yeah. right? Yeah. Academicmatch.com. Exactly. Yeah, in harmony. You have yeah. to take a call. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe out of this project, something like that will be formed. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I feel like we can kind of start wrapping it up there. Did you? Anyone else want to like just add anything or anything I didn't prompt that you thought would be good to say? You've had a made really interesting experiences working with a philosopher. You've got a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. What's that? What's been sort of the 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 best or most impactful thing that you could take home that you say, okay, eight years ago mm-hmm. I didn't have this, and now I have this. I don't know. If this is the most impactful, but one thing is. So I had this 
opportunity to engage in research, right? And answer questions that I wouldn't have had the tools to be able to answer. I wouldn't have ever gone to philosophy conference, right? So being able to do that kind of thing and get those publications. And what it did is, I don't know if it just gave me more confidence, maybe, maybe more space, mental space where um, I started like a bench, my bench research program. So I hadn't been doing bench research. So it made me a better scientist in my discipline as well. And so I had, I was not only producing, you know, philosophy of science work, but now I'm also producing bench research, more of that. And so, and it, I don't think that would have happened otherwise. It just, I don't know if it gave me the confidence maybe, or maybe I realized, oh, I do like research. I just needed to find the right type. So that that's probably one of the best things it's come from it. And I would say you now have an interest in the intersection between history and chemistry. Mm -hmm. That's true. Right. And so that's, yeah. And so, cause some of our work's been centered on that. And so just being able to find, yeah, the spaces for that, that's led to just more opportunities, which I think all of us would agree with that, right? You do one thing, you meet people, and then it leads to more opportunities to be able to do more research, more collaborations. A lot of people who work in philosophy of science have some science background, either, you know, undergraduate major, maybe a master's degrees, and a very few of them will have like PhDs in both philosophy and science. But so while there's a fair amount of understanding about science from philosophers of science, when we go to philosophy conferences, uh, Amanda's the shiny object because she's a working scientist. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see that kind of interaction because it's nice it's particularly when we're talking about chemistry and chemical processes and philosophy of chemistry to have a, a working scientist someone who's involved in, in you know chemical education and supervising undergraduate student research and just has a really good handle on foundational aspects of the discipline it really it raises the bar like in of, of conversation and it's been helpful for me as a collaborator when I have a sense that something that's being said in a presentation is connected to something that we've come across before and it's not really quite landing with me I'm thinking that maybe that person is not is not saying things correctly. I can elbow the scientist and say, "What about this uh, X, Y, and Z?" and and to have that that interaction there too. So, so I think that's been that's been cool to see. The In Search of Theological Scientists project was funded by a generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The views and opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. For more about Blueprint 1543, you can go to blueprint1543.com. You can also go to theologicalscientists.com, and that will take you to more information about this project.